Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. This week, we talk with Dr. Catherine Kling, who, among her many titles, is a Tisch University professor at Cornell University and a member of our board of directors here at RFF. I'll talk with Kathy about a recent op-ed she published in the New York Times called Polluting Farmers Should Pay, which focuses on nutrient runoff from agricultural land and how it contributes to harmful algae blooms across the United States. We'll talk about the potential options for federal and state policies to address the problem, as well as Kathy's early work on developing a social cost of water pollution. Stay with us. Okay, Kathy Kling from Cornell University, thank you so much for joining us today on Resources Radio. I'm so delighted to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so we're really happy to have you. And we are going to talk today about water pollution and some policies around water pollution here in the United States. But before we get into the details, can you tell us first how you became interested in environmental issues and water in particular? Kind of what got you into this work? Yeah, um, I was born in Michigan in a suburb. And my parents were very avid outdoors people, particularly my father. Um, Mom and dad uh, went fly fishing together before us kids were born. Um, And uh, stories are that my mother was a better fisherman than my father. Um, uh, We have no actual videos to prove that, but she was quite proud of that fact. Anyway, when I was a kid, we spent a lot of time on Saturdays, weekends, uh, summer vacations, camping. Um, get the old Coleman tent in the big station wagon and drive north. Um, And uh, as part of that experience, there was always water. It was always about going to water. Often a pond just to dip a bamboo fishing pole in. Sometimes the Great Lakes where we would camp around Lake Superior or Michigan. And so it was just very active part of of my life. One particular story and thing I, I really remember about being a kid is um, my brothers and I would go fishing, as I said, with these old, simple bamboo fishing poles. And my grandmother would make something for us called dough bait. <laughs> now, many people have not heard of dough bait. But I have tell- not heard of dough bait. Okay, so let me tell you what it is. Um, my grandmother had the best recipe for d- d- dough bait, I- I'm sure. It, I'm not exactly sure what the magic ingredients were, but basically it was cornmeal and sugar with some water mixed in and then boiled just long enough to keep it all together. She would give you a a hunk of that stuff and you'd put it in your pocket and you'd go out to the pond or to the lake and you'd use it as bait. You'd put it on your hook uh, and you'd catch fish with it. And it actually sometimes worked. (laughs) But the best part was if you got hungry, you could just reach in your pocket and start chewing on that dough bait to get you through till you, till you went home for lunch. So it really was a dual purpose. Uh, keep the, the fisher people uh, full of energy and hopefully catch some fish. Yeah, that's so great. And it's nice to know that fish like carbs as much as we do. Yes. <laughs> there you go. Um, Sugar, great. at least. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Okay, so next time I go fishing in Michigan, I need to, to, to get the recipe from you. Absolutely. Um, so let's talk about, uh, uh, the subject of a recent New York times op-ed that you wrote, which was about algae blooms or algal blooms. So first, can you, um, uh, correct me on my terminology? Should I be saying algae blooms or algal blooms? I haven't figured this out yet. Um, I have heard both. Okay. So I'm no help. All right. I'll probably go with algae blooms and that seems a little easier to say. Um, so can you tell us what are algae blooms and why are they harmful? 
you bet. Um, I uh, have, of course, a very basic science understanding. I'm not a, a biologist or limnologist. Uh, but the basic idea is that um, there are, of course, lots of bacteria and, and various um, plants that live in our environment. And um, one of them is a cyanobacteria, which, as I said, is naturally occurring in small amounts. When it gets very large, it creates sometimes, under the right conditions, toxins. And those toxins are very dangerous if they are eaten by pets or people. They can kill um, people, and, and, and I, they haven't, to my knowledge, but they certainly have um, killed pets, uh, livestock, um, water, fowl, and, and others. So um, those cyanotoxins become uh, full-blown harmful algal blooms on a large scale as I said, in the right conditions. And those conditions are when they are fed with nutrients like nitrogen and phosphorus that, come, that can come from all, um, a variety of sources, uh, and when they sit still in warm water. So the basic recipe for a cyanobacteria bloom that becomes a full harmful algal bloom is add what is basically fertilizer to the cyanobacteria, whether it's natural or whether it comes from man-made fertilizer, whether it comes from manure. You add that fertilizer, you put it in a nice, warm, not moving lake, stream, whatever, and that will create um, harmful algal blooms. And they can be very large. Uh, they can be small. They have been growing in magnitude and prevalence not only in the United States, but across the world for the last 40 or 50 years. And that's because of human activities. And there's a variety of human activities which contribute to those um, harmful algal blooms. The op-ed piece I wrote focused on the agricultural sources, which are significant and large in many locations. But by no means are they the only sources of those nutrients. Right. Well, can you break that down for us a little in a little bit more detail and tell us about kind of what the the key ingredients are? You you've mentioned agricultural uh, nutrients. Can you tell us a little bit more about sort of the relative contribution of those nutrients relative to contributions from other sources, be they you know human made or uh, or natural in the environment? Yeah. So um, the problems that we're having now are uh, approximately all human-made. <laughs> so the cyanobacteria is out there, but it doesn't create these huge problems naturally. It's when there is these, the right anthropogenic conditions contribute to them. Um, but it is important to recognize that there are multiple sources of where those nutrients come from. And I'll, I'll use the term nutrients generally to mean nitrogen and phosphorus. Um, and so nutrient is just a nice catch-all to, to talk about both. Those nutrients uh, that are now much more prevalent in our environment come from municipal and industrial, uh, industrial wastewater treatment plants. They come from uh, concentrated animal feeding operations. Those are big livestock operations, poultry, uh, uh, hogs, and so on. Um, and they come from 
what are we call non-point sources or diffuse sources. And those are just terms that mean they come from runoff from agricultural fields. They're kind of spread all over. There isn't a real simple, easy point of where they're being um, dumped into the environment. They also come from roads, uh, stormwater. They can be overflows from uh, sewage when our sewage plants and sewage treatment facilities get overloaded by a large rainstorm. So there's a whole large variety of uh, anthropogenic sources of these nutrients that are now impacting our waterways very much in this country, but also around the world. Okay. Yeah, so that makes sense. I mean, that helps give us a basic idea of kind of what the problem is, what some of the main causes are. When we think about addressing this issue, one of the thoughts that came to my mind and one of the points that you uh, make in, in your op-ed is that, you know, this is a problem that affects many states in the U.S. and, as you mentioned, countries around the world. It also crosses state boundaries and the sort of worst impacts often occur hundreds of miles downstream from where the pollution may actually enter the system in the first place. So when you have that kind of problem uh, that crosses state lines in a U.S. context, I often think about, well, maybe there's a role for the federal government here uh, to, to deal with this issue. So, um, but that's not, it, it's not quite so easy to do that. So can you talk about what factors might stand in the way of potential federal action? Yes, you bet. So um, you are absolutely correct that this is a problem that impacts all states. In fact, EPA reports that all 50 of our states do experience harmful algal blooms. Um, something like 15,000 water bodies in the United States are um, out of sync with the amount of nutrients that they have. They have nutrient-related problems. 40% uh, of our lakes that are not swimmable and fishable are uh, because of nutrient problems. So it, it's widespread and it's everywhere. Furthermore, exactly as you note, this is a type of pollutant that can enter into our waterways and streams and often end up far away before it begins the process of creating harmful algal blooms or its sister problem, which is uh, eutrophication and um, the creation of dead zones. Right. And that's uh, like oxygen deprived. Environments. Yeah. 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 So let's turn to the specific example of a, a very large problem, which is the Gulf of Mexico hypoxic zone. Um, so in this case, there are uh, about two-thirds of the states uh, in the continental U.S. flow into the Gulf of Mexico. So that is a, there's a huge watershed in the center of the country. What that means is all the excess nutrients that come off farms, that come off uh, any, any source, farming is the, the main source of the problem there, but it, there's some urban, there's some... Uh, municipal plants as well, all of those nutrients eventually make their way down to the Gulf. It seems very sensible, as you just suggested, that because of that, a federal or at least a large regional uh, agency or plan should be in place to address this. Now we turn to the Clean Water Act, which is the dominant source of regulation and or policy regarding water quality in this country. In the Clean Water Act, they 
specifically identify a distinction between point sources, which can and are regulated under the Clean Water Act, and non-point sources, which are not regulated. Um, for the, the point sources, in fact, we have a, a permit system. It's called the NPDES permit system, which has been in place for since the, since the Clean Water Act, and clearly has made huge improvements in the amount of pollution of pollutants coming from industrial um, and municipal sources that are point in nature, where there's an, a, 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 a plant or a factory or something clear that you know the, the pollution is coming from. They are permitted, they are required to clean up and to um, not be putting a lot of effluent back into the rivers and streams. Uh, however, as I said, the agricultural sector, the diffuse non-point source was explicitly um, ex not incorporated into that decision. So, so we have a large part of the remaining nutrients that are entering, for example, the Gulf of Mexico, that are not under any regulation. In the Gulf of Mexico, again, as you continue with that case, uh, both nitrogen and phosphorus are contributing to the problem. And about 80% of the nitrogen and phosphorus that are making its way down to the Gulf are from agricultural sources. And they're from these diffuse non-point sources. So it really is the, the thing we have to be talking about, um, that agriculture is, is really going to have to be part of the conversation. I do think it's important to note that there are large animal feeding operations which are actually uh, required to have permits. So despite the view that a lot of people tend to think, oh, big industry, big factories, their factory farms are, are the problem, actually they're regulated um, and, and probably do a, a fairly good job. It is the large areas of cropland and of unregulated that much of this nutrient is is still coming from. Yeah, that makes sense. And so you mentioned some of the political factors that people might imagine are at play. Um, when you think about politically feasible routes to addressing this problem uh, for the, the crops that contribute to the issue, do you sort of, do you see any politically feasible routes to uh, amending the Clean Water Act to address these exemptions or other kind of federal avenues that could address the problem in a way that is, you know, both useful and also politically like realistic? Yeah, so um, politically, I, I, I'm not a I, I don't, my short answer is I don't know, but, <laughs> uh, but I, I have a few thoughts in, in that dimension. So, sure. um, so first of all, it is not the case that the federal government has not done some things to, uh, to try to deal with this problem. Um, what, uh, while, while they cannot, under the Clean Water Act, regulate any of these diffuse sources, agricultural uh, cropland, for example, uh, they have programs and have spent quite a bit of funding on programs funded to take land out of production for environmental benefits. That's the Conservation Reserve Program, which over years uh, has taken has paid anywhere from three to five percent of cropland across the U.S. not to farm. 
and it's being paid not to farm because it's in environmentally sensitive areas um, that we, by taking them out of production, actually help to reduce the amount of nutrients. There are also large programs also funded by the federal government, the Environmental Quality Incentive Program, uh, Conservation Security Program, there's a variety of state programs. These are all federal or state dollars that are being used to incentivize farmers, compensate them to take land out of production. Uh, unfortunately, and, and that of course I, is politically feasible. That, that's why I'm you know, noting that. Right, because it's happening. Um, because it's happening and it has been happening and those programs are generally um, very well um, appreciated. Unfortunately, when you look at the plans needed, for example, uh, in the Midwest to solve the Gulf problem, much, much more change has to happen on the landscape than the current set of funding provides. So one option is that we increase taxpayer funding to pay farmers to take more land out of production or to pay them to put on practices to change how they do row crop agriculture a whole lot more I, I don't think that's politically feasible but I'm I'm not good at, at the crystal ball uh, at that point in the conversation is where I then note that while paying to reduce pollution can certainly work, and there's been some, some great uh, success stories from that, local areas. It's not how we have ever chosen, as far as I know, to address pollution from any other source. Instead, we follow a standard polluter pays paradigm, and we require changes uh, through industry. As economists, we really like that, because if all of industry, uh, a particular industry, is required to address the problem, then all of their costs go up. And when all of their costs go up, uh, that means that market start responses get into play. Uh, prices of other commodities, other things will change. Consumers will end up paying a little bit more, maybe a lot, depends on the, the case. Uh, land, rent will probably adjust, and some producers will most definitely feel some uh, increased cost and, and possibly lower profit, possibly not. It all depends on how these uh, supply and demand works out. The point I simply want to make is that that has been the standard approach that we have taken, and that has been very successful in addressing some industrial sources of pollution and other um, air pollutants, for example. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. So we've been talking about a couple specific types of pollution, uh, water pollution, but I know you're interested in sort of the broad array of water pollution issues that are out there. And one of the projects that I've heard you talk about a little bit that I think is at a kind of an early stage that I'm hoping you can tell us about is uh, some work that you're thinking about doing to develop a social cost of water pollution. So uh, this is the last question before we go to our top of the stack segment, but can you tell us uh, about this idea of developing a social cost of water pollution? Yeah, it's basically stealing the idea from those smart people before me who have <laughs> developed a, a lot of work, huge amount of work in the social cost of carbon. Um, that concept 
I think has been very effective in helping people think about the trade-offs that we have to face and address when we have pollution, whether it's uh, greenhouse gas uh, carbon that's contributing to global warming, or whether it's pollutants that are entering our rivers and streams and impacting ecosystem services and, and people. So it's really that idea to try to think about what are the costs being imposed on the end users on the ecosystem services resulting from pollution. And you're correct that it's much broader in spirit and concept than nutrient pollution, although it certainly is very relevant to that. Um, so uh, it, it, there's, there's remaining, uh, plastics is something we're starting to hear a great deal about um, in our waterways, oceans, those are examples. There remain toxics um, at lower levels. Uh, there's just, just a whole variety of, of pollutants. Frankly, my, um, uh, my goal with funding from the Atkinson Center here at Cornell in developing social cost of water pollution would be to start with nutrients, not only because I, I know it uh, better than anything else, um, but there is enough research and enough data, I think, that we can start to really get a handle on the various ecosystem service impacts that nutrients, nitrogen and phosphorus, are imposing. There are drinking water concerns, things like the costs associated and risks of, of shutting down the drinking water facilities into Toledo. There is some nitrogen, nitrates, that ends up in drinking water to uh, private wells that do not get filtration. And so there are people that may be un inadvertently exposed to higher than uh, purely safe nitrate levels. Um, the problems with harmful algal blooms can sicken people. They can provide rashes, make you, make you feel ill. There are clear cases where pets have died as a result of contact. And then there's the whole problem of dead zones, which are related to these nutrients, where large bodies of water experience uh, loss of oxygen because of these blooms as they fall through the water, they decompose, fish are killed, there's commercial fishery impacts, there's pri uh, recreational fishery impacts, and there's very clear impacts on local enjoyment of life for people who see big, gunky, green stuff on their water. It shows up in housing values. Uh, it shows up in where people visit for recreational sites. And so beginning to think about all those different endpoints and bringing them together to quantify and monetize the costs that those are imposing um, and where they're large and where they may not be large. I mean, uh, there may be places that this is not a big concern and we should focus our efforts elsewhere. It's, it's, it's really about directing our efforts where we can get the most benefit from addressing nutrient problems. Yeah, that makes sense. And it's such a fascinating idea. Um, please, you know, keep us posted on it. I, I, I'm sure you will. And uh, we'll hear about it at RFF and would love to have you back to talk more specifically about this topic as it develops over time. 
But now let's uh, let's go to our last question, which is the the question we ask of all of our guests, which is what's at the top of your literal or metaphorical reading stack. So something you've been enjoying lately that you'd recommend to our listeners. And I'll get us started with an article that I came across. You mentioned that you grew up in Michigan. I live in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Oh. And um, mm-hmm. I, I was at Lake Michigan a few uh, weeks ago uh, for a little week vacation. And, um, and I've read an article that was really interesting. And you probably know much more about this than I do, but it was about Great Lakes water quality and talking about how the lakes have uh, in some cases actually become quite a bit clearer um, mm-hmm. in part due to reduced runoff and, and reduced sewage discharge, which is a good yeah. thing. But there's also been these invasive mussels that have come into the lakes and they filter water. Uh, and that also makes yeah. the lakes clearer, which one would think on first blush is a good thing, but clearer water is an indication of less phytoplankton. And again, mm-hmm. I'm starting to get out of my depth here, but um, less, less phytoplankton in the water which means uh, sort of less food from the bottom of the food chain and less support for larger fish. So it can actually harm the fishing economy in these lakes. And um, so that was just a fascinating topic to learn about. And we'll put a link to to this article that I read uh, so people can learn more about it. Um, But how about you, Kathy? What's uh, on the top of your stack? Yeah, so I'd love, uh, I I have uh, two things I'd like to suggest, both things that I've been reading this summer. Um, I've been enjoying reading some poetry and I really enjoy Mary Oliver. Um, there's a, she has written a number of, of um, short uh, poems uh, generally focused on nature, new and selected poems. Um, she's a winner of the National Book Award and Pulitzer Prize for poetry. Um, her her uh, poem, Wild Geese, is spectacular. So I uh, encourage everybody to, to look at her work in general and that particular poem. The other book I thoroughly enjoyed this summer is a book entitled Eager, and that is meant to evoke Eager Beaver, Uh and it is uh, subtitled The Surprising Secret Life of Beavers and Why They Matter uh, by Ben Goldfarb, and it is a fascinating historical and current account of the enormous change in beaver activity, habitat, an impact in the United States over the last couple hundred years, um, how the removal of these amazing critters has fundamentally altered our landscape, our waterways, in many good ways for the way humans want to use waterways, uh, but uh, in some bad ways that um, we kind of wish we could, we could get back. But anyway, it's a fascinating read, and I, I really encourage folks to pick it up. Yeah, those both sound great. Thank you. I think that that's our that's our first poetry recommendation and our first beaver recommendation on the show. So so Yay. two new ones to dig into. Awesome. Thank you so much. Well, well, Kathy Kling, again, thank you. We really appreciate uh, you joining us here on Resources Radio, and we appreciate the many contributions you give to RFF as a member of our board. And um, uh, thank you for for sharing your insight about water pollution and beavers and everything else. <laughs> thank you very much. It's been a joy. You've been listening to Resources Radio. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. Learn more about us at rff.org.
The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the participants. They do not necessarily represent the views of resources for the future, which does not take institutional positions on public policies. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson, with music by me, Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode. 